Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The most critical Zoom call of the pandemic era so far. The lead starts right now. President Biden today virtually staring down Vladimir Putin as Russia licks its chops gazing at Ukraine across the border. Can President Biden help find an off-ramp for a Russia invasion? Is Omicron as dangerous as Delta? There's some promising news in early data on the new variant. Plus, clamming up to cover up Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, now says he will not cooperate with the committee investigating January 6th. He is, of course, willing to sell books about it. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with breaking news in our world lead and one of the most consequential moments of the Biden presidency to date today, President Biden holding a video call with Russia's Vladimir Putin, as U.S. intelligence leaders grow more concerned, Russia is planning yet another military invasion of Ukraine imminently. Moments ago, Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, detailed the call saying that President Biden was direct and straightforward with Putin and warned Putin that any invasion would lead to strong economic measures against Russia. Sullivan also said that if Russia does invade Ukraine again, the U.S. could send more American forces and military equipment into allied countries in that region. We're going to cover every angle of the story today. CNN's Matthew Chance is on the ground in Ukraine, but we're going to kick it off with CNN's Caitlin Collins at the White House. Um, Caitlin, does President Biden now have a clearer idea of Putin's true intentions after this phone call? It doesn't seem to be, Jake, because the White House has said for several days that they have not uh, made an official declaration or their assessment so far is that President Putin has not decided whether or not to invade Ukraine. Of course, they've talked about the fact that it could happen very quickly, that he is certainly preparing to do so. And they've talked about this U.S. intelligence that they may add tens of thousands of more Russian troops there on the border, therefore making it uh, a lot more likely that that would happen. But the White House says the intention of this call today was not necessarily to get clarity on whether or not he intends to do that, but basically to lay out the circumstances of what's going to happen if he does and offer what Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, described as an alternative if they do not do so. But when it comes to clarity on what Putin intends to do, this is what Jake Sullivan said. We still do not believe that President Putin has made a decision. What President Biden did today was lay out very clearly the consequences if he chooses to move. Ultimately, we will see in the days ahead through actions, not through words, uh, what course of action Russia chooses to take. 
Now, of course, Jake, the courses of action that the White House says President Biden laid out was one, if they do, if Russia does invade Ukraine, they say they are prepared to implement strong economic measures, obviously meaning sanctions. Of course, whether or not other nations and European allies do that in conjunction with the United States remains to be seen. But Jake Sullivan did also say they would be prepared to send additional supplies to Ukraine if Russia continues to build up that military presence. Caitlin, the White House says that President Biden also warned Putin, quote, the things we did not do in 2014, that's when the Russians seized Crimea from Ukraine, the things we did not do in 2014, we are prepared to do now. Explain what that might mean. Well, that's notable given, of course, Biden was vice president then, and that is when you, uh, Russia illegally annexed and invaded the Crimean Peninsula, of course, something that has been uh, something that people have looked back to how Putin acted then to how Russia is acting now and about what they may do when it comes to Ukraine and this troop buildup. And so Jake Sullivan saying that they are going to do now what they did not do then is a significant comment, given, of course, he is now the national security advisor to Biden, worked for Biden previously, obviously, and is essentially saying they will take steps that the Obama administration did not take. And we know that at that time when Biden was vice president, he often advocated for sending more military equipment to Ukraine, taking bigger steps there, um, essentially being more upfront about the United States' stance here. And so he is saying that they are going to do now what they did not do when, of course, Biden was vice president. That's right. Back when they did not offer the Ukrainians uh, lethal uh, assistance. Uh, Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Uh, let's go to Odessa, Ukraine right now, where we find CNN's Matthew Chance. Matthew, what are you hearing from the Kremlin in the wake of this call? Well, I was I was uh, listening to Caitlin back then. And, you know, even though President Biden may not have any deeper clarity on what President Putin's intentions are when it comes to Ukraine, he'll certainly have, uh, from, from the Kremlin readout I've got in front of me, have a better idea of what Vladimir Putin's concerns are about Ukraine. Uh, Putin, the, the Russian president, according to this Kremlin uh, readout, uh, made it clear that he did not feel that Russia was responsible for any escalation near Ukraine. He blamed that escalation on NATO, which he said was trying to conquer Ukrainian territory. And he made it clear that what he wanted to see, and he's, he's, he's mentioned this several times over the past several weeks, is a legal agreement that would prevent NATO, the Western military alliance, from advancing any further eastwards towards Russia's borders. It's something that for a long time has been a, a Russian national, uh, national security concern, but it's really come to the fore now. And clearly, this buildup of Russian troops uh, across the border, as many as 100,000, according to US intelligence estimates, you know, is, is the stick that Vladimir Putin is using essentially to, to threaten President Biden and to threaten NATO that unless he gets what he wants, that's what is the consequence. That's what could 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 lay in, lay in wait. It was interesting. The, the White House readout didn't really mention that, but the Kremlin readout emphasized that that was the point that Vladimir Putin and uh, and President Biden uh, talks about most of all. President Biden is set to speak with Ukrainian President Zelensky later this week. What do we know about how closely the White House and the Ukrainian leaders are working to stave off this threat from Russia? 
Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. And we shouldn't forget, of course, that, you know, while President Biden and President Putin are talking on this video conference or have been talking, it's about Ukraine that they've been discussing and the future of this country. Will it be invaded or not? And so there's a great deal of anxiety in the uh, in the sort of government here in the presidential office here as well about what is exactly being discussed when it comes to the future of their country. Are they going to be thrown under a bus by the United States, their strategic allies, or, or, or is the United States, is Joe Biden going to stand by them? I think what they've heard so far is you know, quite, you know, is, is setting their concerns at rest. But there's not going to be a phone call uh, with uh, the Ukrainian president until a few days from now. They were consulted ahead of this video uh, conference call, but they're still waiting quite anxiously to see what is expected of them to avert this potential Russian invasion, Jake. All right, Matthew Chance reporting from Ukraine. Thanks so much. Here in studio to discuss Republican Congressman Mike Turner of Ohio. He is on the House Intelligence uh, Committee. Thanks so much for for joining us. We really appreciate it. So you heard Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, come out detail the warnings he says Biden gave Putin. Do you think those warnings went far enough? Well, we don't really have any specifics about what was discussed. Now, this this certainly is a a good step in that we have the you know, two leaders talking directly and Biden and the readout that we're getting from Jake Sullivan apparently was strong in his words and saying that, you know, we will uh, exact sanctions and we'll do it greater than when I was vice president, as, as was just just said. The issue here is that, uh, you know, what actions are going to follow? Uh, because, you know, President Biden could have already been in the process of, of sending, as you indicated, lethal weapons into Ukraine. There could be more intelligence sharing. Uh, Ukraine right now could have a better understanding of what's happening with the 175,000 or so troops that uh, Putin has assembled around Ukraine. We could be, and they talked about later, uh, strengthening our NATO allies around Ukraine. They could be doing it now. Um, And we could have a greater understanding of what those sanctions might be that could deter Russia. Uh, But in this, you know, as we know from the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, the president said we won't run for the exits. And then he had them do that in the middle of the night. We have to make certain here that uh, President Biden matches his words with actual sanctions and, as you said, lethal aid for Ukraine. So in addition to the things you just laid out, uh, having the sanctions in place, ready to go, uh, having uh, U.S. troops in allied countries in the area, having lethal aid on its way, intelligence sharing. Are there other things? I assume that you you would want those things to be Absolutely. going on. Right? What else, if anything, would you want the, the U.S. to be doing? Well, those those would be really important. The, the you know, and last time, as you indicated, they uh, the Obama administration sent blankets as um, Putin invaded. They Crimea. sent a little bit more than that, but they didn't send lethal aid. Well, the, you know, the the president of Ukraine was on the House floor saying, "I can't fight fight a war with blankets." So from his perspective, he was getting blankets. Um, when they annex Crimea from Ukraine. So taking a shift of in, ensuring that we provide them lethal weapons, uh, ground-to-air missiles, um, the javelins, an increased ability to fight tanks and the types of invasion that they're, that they're really looking at would be really important right now. So the White House said, Jake Sullivan said, that they, they, they don't think that Putin has made up his mind yet on whether or not to invade Ukraine. Um, obviously, you see a lot of information that we don't. You remember the House Intelligence Committee do you agree? Do you think Putin hasn't made up his mind yet? Well, I think what we see is that, you know, this buildup is enormous, 175,000 plus troops surrounding Ukraine, um, that, that certainly when you take this in context with what happened in April, where Putin came up to the line with you know, thousands of troops and threatened Ukraine and then backed off, that if there's going to be a decision point where Putin does not invade, it's going to be because the United States and our allies took action and were resolved 
and communicated to Putin that there was going to be a cost higher than he expects uh, for him to turn around. And that's what this administration's really got to do now is get over that bar to let Putin believe and understand that, that there will be consequences for this greater than he believes. How do you do that without provoking Putin into wanting to do something because he feels like the United States and NATO are being so aggressive in their response that to back down would look weak. You know what I mean? There's a line here. How, how, does, how does one achieve that? Well, you know, NATO is not provocative in this instance, right? <laughs> Ukraine was sitting there going about its, its business, being a democracy. NATO countries that are members of, of NATO are, are, are surrounded. No one is being uh, provocative to Russia or even uh, provocative against Ukraine, which is a d- democratic country. So it's really, you know, a, a um, complete disingenuous uh, statement by Putin's uh, regime to be able to saying that, well, Ukraine is being threatened, so therefore we're going to invade. It's the other way around. The only, the only thing that's threatening Ukraine is Putin. So sources tell CNN that the Pentagon is considering options for possibly evacuating citizens, U.S. citizens from Ukraine if Russia invades. Now, it, it's not nearly the same situation, but you just talked about uh, the U.S. evacuating right. Uh, individuals uh, from Afghanistan. Are you confident uh, that if it comes to it, if Russia does invade Ukraine and there is a concern about American citizens and legal permanent residents of the United States, that there is a plan that would be effective by the Biden administration to get Americans out? Not necessarily, but this is, this situation is different. Very different, Afghanistan. of course. Yeah, um, there's you know ten couple tens of thousands of people of United States citizens that that live in Ukraine, reside in Ukraine, and you know the Ukraine officials have already indicated that if Putin does invade, not only do they believe that it would be a bloodbath, but that there would be you know millions of refugees that that leave Ukraine. So there would be a need for providing assistance to Americans. Obviously, when you have something that becomes a war zone, it makes it that much more difficult. This isn't just the Taliban advancing. You recall last time when they took Crimea, uh, Putin's forces even downed a commercial airliner, killing all of the citizens that were on board because it was a war zone and it's very difficult uh, for normal operations to occur around it. Yeah, I think they did that from Russia, though, not from Crimea itself. But it, it was, was the same, part of the same era. Yes, yeah, same, the, same basic era. Before you go, Congressman, I have to ask you, um, you're the number two Republican on the House Intelligence Committee, the number one Republican Congressman Devin Nunes of California announced that he's retiring to go work, work for Trump's media uh, company. Do you want the top job? Uh, presumably, if Republicans take the House, you would be the chair. Yes, Do you I, want that? Absolutely. I mean, I think national security is incredibly important to be able to contribute to both the dialogue and the direction that we take for national security is important. Uh, and so, yes, I'll, I'll be seeking the position. All right. Good to, good to have you here, sir. Thank you so much, as Thank always. You. Um, And the health crisis now, after the health crisis, the new concern for teens after the isolation of the pandemic. Then it may be the ultimate New York City mic drop, outgoing Mayor Bill de Blasio defending his decision that angered small business owners and New York citizens alike. Stay with us. In our health lead now, Dr. Fauci says based on early data, the Omicron variant, quote, might be less severe. Meanwhile, the Delta variant is still dominating in the United States and cases are rising here. And as CNN's Jason Carroll reports for us now, new vaccine mandates in the Big Apple are pitting private businesses and city leaders against each other. This is a preemptive strike. In New York City, business leaders question how the new COVID mandate will work. To bar children from entering our establishment 
is ludicrous. It's probably going to cause a 20% to 30% reduction. The worry comes after the city's mayor announced private sector employees must be vaccinated by December 27th and children ages 5 to 11 will need at least one shot to enter restaurants, gyms and other entertainment venues by December 14th. Who enforces it? Like, who's the person? Do you, you check with each company to make sure all their employees are vaccinated? Are you going to find the companies if they don't? So we have experience already with private sector with, as I said, restaurants and others, indoor entertainment. We had almost no fines. There was a lot of cooperation. Our Department of Health is going to work with the business sector. We're going to come out with specific uh, protocols by December 15th so people have time. All this as Omicron is spreading. But it's the Delta variant that continues to take its toll, with 120,000 new daily cases reported. The Midwest and Northeast particularly hard hit. Michigan now seeing record hospitalizations. The U.S. averaging more than 1,600 deaths each day, one of the highest rates in more than a month. And a troubling sign among the nation's youngest as COVID cases among children rise again with 133,000 new cases last week alone. So I'm hoping that I've been hoping this for a few months that people looking at this situation with both Delta and maybe the threat of Omicron would say, if you're not vaccinated, boy, is this the time to roll up your sleeve. Despite troubling national numbers, members of the White House COVID task force say there are encouraging numbers as well. Just in the last week, we've gotten 12.5 million total shots in arms. That's the highest weekly total of number of shots since May. And Jake, new polling out gives some more insight into Americans' behavior when it comes to responding to Omicron. 62% of Americans say they would mask up when indoors in public spaces, but then you really see a break along party lines because when you ask Democrats, the number goes to 82% say yes, they would mask up versus 67% of independents and just 38% of Republicans. Jake? Jason Carroll, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss, Dr. Peter Hotez, co-director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital. Dr. Hotez, thanks for joining us. I wanted to get your reaction to something. Listen to White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki when asked why testing at home kits are not free and available to every American. Why not just make them free and give them out and have them available everywhere? Should we just send one to every American? Maybe. Then, then, what ha- then what happens if, you, if every American has one test? How much does that cost? And then what happens after that? To Saki's response, Rick Bright, um, Trump's ousted vaccine director and former Obama advisor on the matter, tweeted, quote, actually stunned by this response, adding extra insurance barriers isn't the answer. Yes, mail them to all Americans. What do you think, Dr. Hotez? Is it really that crazy an idea to talk about mailing tests uh, for COVID to every American? But- well, I think Jen Psaki's a, a fabulous press secretary, but that was not her her best moment. Uh, you know, in in fairness, um, you know, she hasn't been given a lot to work with. I think the current plan ma- ma- makes no sense as far as I can see that we're going to ask consumers to buy it on their own and then try to get it out of the insurance companies. We've learned, Jake, one thing among the things we've learned over the last two years is our health system when it comes to COVID-19 can tolerate zero complexity. The minute we make things the least bit fussy, it totally breaks down because in the end, we don't have a health system like the UK or Western European countries or Israel or even 
you know, Canada, we just have a very depleted health system and it doesn't work. So here's what has to happen. It, we've got to, we don't have to make it free, but anyone should be able to walk into a CVS or Rite Aid or a local pharmacy and for a couple of bucks at a subsidized rate, get a home test so they can do home testing. We have to make things super easy breezy if we want Americans to get tested. And so, and, and that's where, that's where we need to aspire to go. And it shouldn't be that hard. We've never fixed testing in this country. We've also been hearing the cases, <clears throat> pardon me, are rising among children. Uh, the vaccine for kids ages five to 11 rolled out more than a month ago. You specialize in vaccines for kids. Um, what about kids under five? Well, three components to this. First of all, we know what happens with this del- with these delta waves because it was here in Texas and in the s- southern states. As this delta wave ripped through the south, we saw thousands of pediatric hospitalizations. Even, even for the first time, pediatric intensive care units get overwhelmed. So that's what's going to happen again with this new delta wave as it goes through the rest of the country uh, into the winter. So the most important takeaway, vaccinate our kids. We, we The rates are too low, I think. Massachusetts or New England states are at the top of the heap in terms of vaccinating kids 5 to 11. I think it's something ridiculously low, like 20 percent and goes into the single digits here in Texas and southern states. So we've got to maximize that. Younger kids, let's get through the the school age kids um, uh, by the end of the year. Younger kids, maybe by early next year. But we're not getting the word out about the urgency to vaccinate the five to 11 year olds. And by the way, here in the South, we're also not vaccinating the 12 to 17 year olds. I don't understand it. As soon as my son turned 12, we ran out and got him vaccinated. Um, Dr. Hotez, there's this new study from Canada showing that cases of anorexia among kids and teens soared during the early stage of the pandemic. Do you think we're just scratching the surface now of, of learning how harmful this pandemic has been on children beyond the COVID itself? Absolutely. And and it has a lot of nuance and multiple levels. I haven't seen that particular study, but no question, we've had a big hit. The mental health of our kids across the United States and North America have, have taken a hit, and it's going to take a long time to um, help those kids recover. So we're going to have to rebuild our mental health services in elementary schools, in junior high schools and high school. So we should anticipate that. The other thing, Jake, that we're not even close to addressing is all the neuropsychiatric consequences of long COVID in kids. Some estimates from Great Ormond Street Hospital in uh, in, in the UK say one in seven kids uh, uh, in, in London have long COVID symptoms, mm. meaning more than 15 months. And we've seen long COVID be associated with cognitive decline, gray matter, brain degeneration oh. in adults. We don't know what the impact on kids are. And so that we have to get ready for as well. Dr. Peter Hotez, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Trump's former chief of, chief of staff, Mark Meadows, now says he will not comply with the January 6th committee. But of course, you can read all about his view of what happened in the Trump White House in his new book. Stay with us. In our politics lead today, a reversal today by Mark Meadows, Trump's former White House chief of staff, says he will no longer cooperate with the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. Meadows' lawyers also revealing in a letter that the House Committee subpoenaed Meadows' phone records from his service provider. And this hour, sources tell CNN, this committee is pursuing the phone records of others with ties to former President Trump. More on that in a minute. But first, 
CNN's Paula Reed with this new strategy by one of Trump's closest allies. A significant blow for the House Select Committee investigating January 6th as former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows says he will no longer cooperate. In a letter obtained by CNN, today Meadows' attorney informed the panel, we agreed to provide thousands of pages of responsive documents and Mr. Meadows was willing to appear voluntarily for a deposition to answer questions about non-privileged matters. Now actions by the select committee have made such an appearance untenable. He says Meadows would consider answering written questions. Meadows' new book about his time in the White House hits shelves today. Some committee members argue he has waived any executive claim of privilege by sharing details about Trump and January 6th in his book. If the former president waived his privilege so that Meadows could write about it, he cannot then assert privilege to prevent him from answering questions about it. The committee says it will go forward with Meadows' deposition, scheduled for tomorrow, and if he does not appear, they will proceed with a contempt referral, just as they did with another Trump ally, Steve Bannon. That case moving ahead today after a federal judge set a July 18th date for Bannon to be tried for criminal contempt of Congress. Bannon refused to comply with a subpoena from the House Select Committee. He's pleaded not guilty and vowed to fight. I'm never going to back down, and they, they, they took on the wrong guy this time, okay? While some witnesses aren't cooperating, there's one significant official who is. CNN reporting that Mark Short, the former chief of staff to Vice President Mike Pence, is cooperating, potentially giving investigators key insights. He is definitely uh, Mike Pence's confidant. Short is a first-hand witness to many critical events the committee is examining and the pressure Pence faced from Trump and others to overturn the election results on January 6th. Following the insurrection, the inspector general for the Capitol Police made more than 100 recommendations to address the security flaws that allowed the January 6th mob to overwhelm the Capitol Police. Well, Jake, he testified today that only 30, just a fraction of those recommendations have been implemented as we, of course, approach the one-year anniversary of that attack. All right, Paula, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Breaking news, we're learning new details about the January 6th committee's next move. Stay with us. We have some breaking news for you in our politics lead. CNN is learning that the January 6th Select Committee has subpoenaed phone records for more than 100 people, including former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. CNN's Jamie Gangel joins us now with the CNN exclusive. And, and Jamie, has the committee been successful with any of these subpoenas? Have they gotten hold of these phone records? We have been told that uh, a batch went out and a batch has come back. There's another batch out. So we know that they have requested more than 100 And they certainly have gotten a group of those records back. I just want to explain what the call detail records are. It is not the substance of the phone call. Right, there's no recording of these calls. It is not the substance of a text message. But it tells you who called whom, at what time, for how long, who texted another person. So now what they do is they take these call detail records and... Perhaps they can build a web of communication on the, uh, on the day of January 6th. Although the timing goes, from my understanding, is from at least one record we saw, that they requested call detail records going back to November 1st, just before the hmm. election. 
through the end of January. And you have some new reporting on former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. What do you, what do you have? So, so this is brand new, just into CNN. We know that he is now not cooperating. And if you look closely at the committee's statement, they mention and remind us that he has voluntarily already handed over with no claim of privilege, we know more than 6,000 pages of documents. What CNN has learned today, a source with knowledge has told me, that in those 6,000 pages of documents are his communications on January 6th as the riot was unfolding with no claim of privilege. So we don't know exactly who he was communicating with on January 6th, but the committee now has this information. And as you and I know, a lot of people had Mark Meadows' telephone numbers. So let's just think about who might have been calling him and texting him and emailing him. White House officials, rally organizers, Trump loyalists, members of Congress, some reporters. The committee has those records. Wow. That's intense. Jamie Gangel, thanks for that. Let's bring in uh, Democratic Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren. She's on the select committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. Congresswoman, thanks for joining us. Let's start with these phone records subpoenaed by your your panel. What specifically are you looking to find by going this route? Details. Um, As you know, this is a gigantic uh, puzzle. We've got many pieces and we need to put some more pieces together. Uh, As your reporter explained, this is not the content of any text or phone call. It's um, time, uh, place, it's data, really it's metadata. And it will help us uh, put together the picture. Um, By the way, Mark has sent over volumes of material, including real-time communication as the riot unfolded without an assertion of privilege. The committee wants to ask him about some of that, and it's really untenable that all of a sudden at the last minute he's saying no, that somehow there's some reason why he can't uh, talk about this, especially after his book is out. Apparently, I haven't read it yet, but from reports recounting conversations he had directly with the president, he's reporting on that in his book for money, but refusing to talk to the committee about it. That's untenable. If you get the uh, metadata from a phone company that suggests, let's say, um, individual A talk, uh, t- texted individual B, and, and you think you can build a case, or you think that that might be very integral to your investigation, can you then go to a judge and seek the content of that text message? Sure. Um, sure, if there's probable cause to do that. There's a basis for doing that. But by the way, when there's a text exchange, there's more than one party who has the text. And we've had more than 275 witnesses come into the committee already. We've had more than 30,000 documents produced to us and hundreds and hundreds of tips that have come in. So we are compiling information. There's no single witness that has all of the information that we're seeking to obtain. Uh, Obviously, there are things we want to learn from Mark Meadows, uh, but we're getting information from a variety of sources. Have you established in any way yet that the attack on the Capitol 
was pre-planned by individuals either in the White House or with close connections to the White House during the Trump years? I, I don't want to answer that question at this point because we're in the middle of this investigation. But let me just say there's plenty left to investigate, and we've found a very important evidence so far. Another Trump ally, Steve Bannon, faces an upcoming trial after fighting his subpoena from your committee, both for testimony and for documents. Bannon has been charged with criminal contempt of Congress. The Justice Department wanted a trial to start in mid-April. The Bannon team pushed for October 2022. Today, a judge seemed to settle that disagreement, and he set the date for July 18th, 2022. What's your reaction to his legal strategy? To to Bannon's legal strategy? Yeah. I don't know if there is one. I mean, obviously, he'd like to stay out of uh, prison for as long as possible. Um, you always hope for early trial dates. You know, justice delayed is justice denied. Um, but a July trial date means that he will be facing the music uh, mid next year. And uh, I think that's appropriate. Bannon has been all in on this strategy of Trump supporters infiltrating local Republican Party posts. Uh, in an interview, Bannon told CNN Sarah Murray, quote, it's about winning elections with the right people, MAGA people. We will have our people in at every level, unquote. Your committee is reviewing how the insurrection unfolded. Um, but do you think for, January, for Trump supporters, January 6th was also a lessons learned for Team MAGA? In other words, the safeguards, the guardrails held barely uh, during the last election. But do you think the Trump team also learned, okay, this is what we need to do so that next time we can overturn the election? Well, I think what we're doing here in the January 6th committee is about defending democracy. What steps do we need to take to make sure that it's the votes and the voices of the American people that determine our future, not a cabal that wants to insert or overturn the voters' desires with their own uh, quest for power. That's what ultimately this is about. And we're looking at the facts and what happened on the 6th, but also trying to uh, inform ourselves about what steps need to be taken to protect the democracy. Democratic Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, thank you so much. Good to see you as always. Coming up, stern words from China following President Biden's diplomatic boycott of the upcoming Olympic Games in China. That's next. In our world lead today, officials in Beijing today warning that the United States will, quote, pay the price after the Biden administration announced a full diplomatic boycott of the upcoming Olympic Winter Games in protest of the genocide and crimes against humanity that the Biden administration says the Chinese government is committing against religious minorities. CNN's David Culver is live for us in Shanghai, China. David, what exactly is the Chinese government threatening here? Uh, for now, Jake, just lots of threatening remarks, harsh words from the foreign ministry. They're saying the U.S., as you put it, will pay the price for its wrongdoings, adding that the U.S. has shot itself in the foot, warning, wait and see for China's countermeasures. Now, the Chinese embassy where you are in D.C. saying that the move was pretentious. They say U.S. officials, well, they weren't even invited. And they call all of this, Jake, rooted in ideological bias. They say it's rumors, it's lies, things that we've heard multiple times as we've been reporting firsthand on the atrocities and allegations of human rights abuses taking place 
in Xinjiang, particularly against the ethnic Uyghur Muslim community. So, Jake, it's not surprising, but they're pushing back, saying that this is really the U.S. trying to victimize China in all of this. And, wow. and one thing I should point out also, Jake, is that it's likely that when people say, what's China going to do to really react here? They're going to do something to advance their ideology. You and I have talked extensively on their desire to expand control over society here, the party in particular. I'm even hearing that it's possible that they'll react in some way by blocking U.S. films, for example, from entering this, what is the world's largest box office, or perhaps take it out on businesses here in, in Shanghai, some American businesses in particular. I've heard some concerns from some of the local business leaders about that. Either way, they'll be able to crack down on Western influence by doing that, really prevent any spread of some of the U.S. intervention as they see it within China and continue pushing forward with the party's ideology, Jake. All right, David Culver reporting from China. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Finally, some relief why holiday travel and staying warm could get slightly more affordable. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, dozens of people killed and thousands more evacuated after a massive volcano erupted, wiping out several villages and the destruction could be much worse. Plus, gas prices ticking down for once. How long might this last? And leading this hour, one of the most consequential foreign policy moments of Joe Biden's presidency. President Biden today holding a two-hour video call with Russia's Vladimir Putin amid fears that Russia is about to invade Ukraine again. The threat is so dire that the Biden administration is looking at options to potentially evacuate U.S. citizens from Ukraine if this situation escalates, according to several sources. This afternoon, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said President Biden was direct with Putin in their call. As Caitlin Collins reports, Biden made clear the U.S. will react to further Russian escalation in Ukraine with, quote, specific, robust, clear responses. A high-stakes call amid fears of a Russian invasion. Hello. Good to see you again. With tensions simmering on the border of Ukraine, President Biden spoke to Russian President Vladimir Putin for two hours and one minute today. The call covered a range of issues, but the main topic was Ukraine. The call posing a critical test for Biden as he tries to avoid a major European security crisis if Russia invades Ukraine. So did President Biden get clarity from him on whether or not that is his intention? We still do not believe that President Putin has made a decision. What President Biden did today was lay out very clearly the consequences if he chooses to move. Biden warning Putin about strong economic consequences and, quote, other measures. But it remains to be seen if the combative Russian leader backs down. There was no finger wagging. But the president was crystal clear. Putin had his own demands, including blocking Ukraine from joining the military alliance known as NATO. He made no such commitments or concessions. Sullivan adding that the U.S. is prepared to act in ways it didn't after Russia illegally annexed Crimea when President Obama was in office. I will look you in the eye and tell you, as President Biden looked President Putin in the eye and told him today, that things we did not do in 2014, we are prepared to do now. Tensions between the United States and Russia have only gotten worse in the months since Biden and Putin sat down for talks in Geneva. At that meeting in June six months ago, Biden predicted he would know soon if he had made real progress with Putin. What is going to happen next is we're going to be able to look back, look ahead in three to six months and say, 
Did the things we agreed to sit down and try to work out, did it work? Of course, Jake, we are now at that six-month mark since the president said those comments in Geneva in June. We should note when it comes to timelines that the White House says President Biden will speak to the Ukrainian President Zelensky on Thursday to talk about this two-hour conversation he had with the Russian leader today. That follows, of course, conversations he also had with other European allies this afternoon. And Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, said they are going to stay in touch with their Russian counterparts to go through detail by detail what the consequences would be if Russia did invade Ukraine. All right, Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Let's bring in the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, Victoria Nuland. Uh, Secretary Nuland, thanks for joining us. So this afternoon, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told reporters that the U.S. does not think that President Putin has yet made a decision on whether to invade Ukraine. Why not? Well, among other things, I think that President Putin wanted to talk to President Biden, wanted to better understand uh, where we are and where our allies are on some of these issues. And that was why it was extremely important for our president and for other leaders in Europe to be very clear about the extreme consequences that will result for Russia if they uh, move aggressively against Ukraine again. In the previous hour, we interviewed uh, Congressman uh, Mike Turner of Ohio, who was on the House Intelligence Committee. And he said a lot of the threatened uh, steps in terms of lethal aid for Ukraine, in terms of sending uh, U.S. troops to allied countries, uh, in terms of having sanctions ready, that, they are, that all sounded good, but it all sounded too much in the future that these things should be happening now. Why, in fact, are they not happening now to deter Putin from the invasion? Uh, Jake, what is happening now is intensive consultations with our allies and partners on the kind of response that could come immediately and in a very painful way should Putin move. And then to put those uh, things in the window so Putin can see them and so that his people can also understand that this highly unnecessary war will not only be bloody, it'll also be extremely painful economically for the average Russian and for the Russian state. A half dozen sources tell CNN that the Biden administration is considering evacuating U.S. US citizens from Ukraine uh, should Russia actually invade. Uh, how many Americans are we talking about? Do we know how many American citizens or legal permanent residents are in Ukraine? Well, the number of Americans in Ukraine fluctuates. Around Christmas time, we tend to have more as people come to visit. There are also a number of dual nationals, but it, you know, it's in the 10 to 15,000 uh, person range. But you know, obviously, with regard to any kind of uh, military contingency, we also have to be thinking ahead and not be caught flat-footed. Would that evacuation process happen immediately after an invasion? Is there some specific place where those citizens and dual citizens and legal permanent residents should go? Should they all go to Odessa? What's the plan? Um, as has happened in the past, Jake, if we are concerned about imminent hostilities in Ukraine, we will begin warning U.S. citizens, as we do all around the world, as we are currently in Ethiopia, as we did months and months and months ahead of the evacuation in Afghanistan, that it's time for them to find their way home. This afternoon, you testified that the U.S. is watching for the potential that Russia could invade Ukraine through Belarus which is just north of Ukraine, or you said Russia might mask its forces as Belarusian forces. So is Putin 
using the Russian-Ukrainian border as something of a smokescreen, potentially. Well, Russia currently has forces on three sides of Ukraine, which is not a scenario we've seen before. Some 100,000 troops now, uh, with an estimated plan for almost double that. And as you know, Belarus has a very long border with Ukraine. What we have not yet seen, but which we could see, are Russian forces coming down towards Ukraine from Belarus, or as I said today, masking as Belarusian forces. We've seen the increasing dependence that Belarusian President Lukashenko has on Putin, so Putin could uh, demand that he return the favor. It's only been a few months since the chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, if the U.S. ends up sending troops to Ukraine in any way, as advisors, as trainers, or whatever. How concerned are you that we we could be uh, watching a a repeat of Afghanistan in our near future? Uh, Jake, that's four levels of hypothetical that I'm not going to go into. But what I will say is that the U.S. has provided some $450 million this year alone in security support for Ukraine. Uh, And they are going to need that if they are confronting Russian forces. And they are uh, a very strong security partner of ours because our commitment to their sovereignty and territorial integrity and independence is unwavering. Undersecretary Victoria Nuland, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's discuss with my team here. Uh, Julia Yaffe, um, let me start with you. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told reporters, today the U.S. does not believe that Putin's mind has been made up about invading Ukraine. You've covered Putin for years. Um, do you think that's true? And is this, is this somebody whose mind can actually be changed by the threat of serious action by the U.S. and NATO? Well, as we saw with the first time he invaded Ukraine in 2014, when he illegally annexed Crimea and started this drawn-out conflict in the eastern uh, part of Ukraine, he tends to make his decisions quite quickly in a kind of knee-jerk manner. And I think he is... as is his want, weighing his options. And I think we'll know if he has decided to invade Ukraine when he invades Ukraine. (laughs) And that's how we'll know he's decided. And Evan Asnes, um, you you wrote a a great biography on Joe Biden. Um, How momentous uh, was this conversation today for Joe Biden? This is somebody who has been um, a little bit more hawkish than his former boss, President Obama, not in terms of direct military confrontation, uh, but but in terms of more direct... um, aid to the Ukrainians, et cetera, when it comes to Putin. Yeah, I mean, part of this is that he has a fundamental lack of trust in Vladimir Putin's intentions, his word. I mean, there is this famous moment, which we sometimes recall back when Joe Biden visited Vladimir Putin at the Kremlin and said, I looked into his eyes and he didn't, you don't have a soul, is what he said. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't say that to that many foreign leaders. Now, here they are a decade later facing this moment of incredible negative potential. This this could put a cloud over the Obama, sorry, the Biden administration. They are trying to prevent this from becoming a catastrophe. But it's not the case in which he's working with somebody who we trust, who he can say, look, let's try to work around the edges. He's fundamentally trying to threaten a guy without doing it as directly as a threat might sound. It's interesting because um, uh, a top Bush official said on this show a few years ago that they wish they had stood up to uh, Putin more after he took away part of Georgia, uh, the country of Georgia. Uh, It sounds like Biden almost today was almost suggesting that, like, we're going to I'm going to be tougher against you than my than Obama was Mm -hmm. when he said, like, we're going to do things uh, that we didn't do in 2014. 
Well, it is interesting that uh, Jake Sullivan mentioned what Obama did and didn't do in 2014, because the point man on Ukraine under the Obama administration was none other than Joe Biden. And he was intimately involved in managing the Ukraine portfolio after the invasion of 2014. Um, I think the Georgia analogy is an apt one. In fact, you have the Russians, you have the foreign minister of Russia, Sergei Lavrov, saying, you know, this could be like Georgia for you guys. And what happened then was Russia turned up the pressure with uh, troops on the border, handing out Russian passports to people in Georgia across the border and turned up the pressure so high that the Georgians inevitably stumbled, shot at some peacekeepers and gave Russia the pretext to invade. And so Lavrov is overtly warning that we can try doing this thing again. So I think that's the reason Georgia in 2008 and what could have been done then is on people's minds. Although I think it's pretty clear that U.S. troops are off the table for Joe Biden, don't you think? That's absolutely right. I mean, I think one of the things, even though you hear him making tough statements now, the truth is Joe Biden has been very skeptical about the application of American force, specifically troops on the ground in Ukraine. I remember in 2014, I traveled there with him, interviewed him on the way back. He talked about the conversation he'd had with Ukrainian officials where he said, look, in effect, we are not going to be putting troops here. And they weren't happy about it. So he has, and this is consistent with his broader approach, he does not want to extend American forces more than he has to. So the goal now is to try to use these other tools, financial instruments, sanctions, other ways you might be able to get the Russians to change their behavior. And well, to, the, to that end, you know, he just ended one war, right? Mm-hmm. He just took Americans out, American forces out of Afghanistan, starting another one in a foreign country that a lot of Americans, I think, couldn't locate on a map, would not really be in keeping with that mission. The other thing is that highlights how absurd this crisis is and how much it is a product of Putin's kind of paranoid imagination. He imagines that NATO troops on the ground in Ukraine, that American rockets are in Ukraine pointed at Russia, and they're not. None of that is true. Nobody was talking about admitting Ukraine to NATO. NATO doesn't really want Ukraine. And Putin is saying, well, okay, but give me a legally binding guarantee that you won't do it, and is creating all of this over something that isn't happening, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. And Evan, I mean, it it does seem to me like this will be a test of the Biden doctrine. Biden is somebody uh, who has been very skeptical of the use of American force when it comes to Afghanistan, when it comes to Iraq, when it comes to Ukraine. Uh, Not that the U.S. military couldn't accomplish the mission, just that the it's the, you know this this isn't World War Two, right? Uh, exactly, and I think also this is a proof of his ability to read the other person across the table and figure out what is actually going to pick the lock. And Julia has written brilliantly about Vladimir Putin's paranoia, and paranoia is the central ingredient here. What Joe Biden had to do today was to get him to understand the United States is not seeking to invade. Russia anytime soon. And I know that can sound like a thing that we don't even need to announce here. But if you're Vladimir Putin, you're insulated, you're cut off from a lot of other information. That's something you need to hear from an American president. Great to have you here. Julia Yaffe, Evan Rosnos, appreciate it. Coming up next, new details about just how sick Donald Trump was with COVID revealed by his own chief of staff. We're going to talk to a top Trump official who was there, plus dramatic moments with the actor on the stand, the tense moments today in the Jussie Smollett trial as the defense rests. Stay with us. And our money lead, finally some economic relief, however minor. Americans are paying a little less at the pump after weeks of rising energy prices. A new report finds the national average price of gas dropped four cents in the last week to 3.35 a gallon. Still pretty high. Natural gas prices are down 40 percent 
since October's peak. Let's get right to CNN's Matt Egan. And Matt, let's start with the gasoline prices. Why is this going down now? Well, Jake, that's right. Uh, gasoline prices have finally stopped going straight up. And this trend really began last month on rumors that President Biden would release barrels of oil from the nation's uh, strategic petroleum reserve. By the time that break the glass moment actually happened, oil prices were down by 10 percent from their peak. And that has started to trickle down to gasoline prices, which move with a lag. Uh, now, the national average is down to $3.35 a gallon. Um, that is not cheap, but it is a seven-week low, and it is moving in the right direction. But, you know, the other big factor here is COVID. Fears about Omicron really sent oil prices crashing after Thanksgiving. Uh, there were really big worries about what that would do to the economy. Thankfully, some of those COVID fears have started to fade in recent days, but that has also driven oil prices back up. So, Jake, the fact that we're seeing oil rebound, it calls into some question, you know, how sustainable the, uh, the relief at the pump really is going to be. This dramatic decline in natural gas is, is a bigger deal, I think, than, than these uh, four cents a gallon uh, for gas going down. And it's a good sign for home heating costs as we come into the winter here, right? Yeah, absolutely, Jake. That, that is a bigger deal. It's much more dramatic. Um, you know, just two months ago, we saw natural gas prices hit a seven-year high. There were all these worries about uh, a shortage of natural gas. And what we've seen, and you can see it on that chart, is that they're actually down by 40%, 40% in two months. Now, natural gas is still up sharply on the year, but it's finally been knocked down. This is mostly due to Mother Nature. Families haven't had to crank up the heat as much as usual because uh, temperatures have actually been warmer than usual. So that has lower demand. Also, we've seen stronger production of natural gas. Um, this has allowed inventory levels to get back to kind of normal levels, and it's reduced those fears about uh, natural gas and running out of supply. But, Jake, you know, we do have to point out the obvious. It's early. Winter hasn't even actually officially begun yet. So if we do see temperatures drop and stay low, we could see natural gas move up. Uh, big picture, Jake, I do think that uh, there is some positive news, some glimmers of hope for inflation-weary Americans. All right, Matt Egan, thanks so much. Let's discuss with my august panel, Jackie Kucinich. Happy birthday. Thank you. Um, the Biden administration has been on the receiving end of some blistering criticism uh, over the rise of gas prices in recent week, along with uh, other inflation. Will this be enough to save off some of the criticism, these, these developments in natural gas and small reduction in gas prices? I think it just ha- you have to look at what's going to happen you know, week after week, right? One, one week of relief when it comes to gas prices, isn't going to matter if come February your home heating prices are through the roof. And even places where people are making more money, their wages are up, it doesn't really, it, 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 you don't really break even if, you know, all the everything else is more expensive, it cuts into even money you can save. So it, 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 I think it's too soon to tell and they can message as much as they would like, but until things actually stabilize and come down, it's going to be problematic for them and for their allies in the House and the Senate. In the previous hour, uh, Congressman Mike Turner of Ohio, who's the number two Republican on the House Intelligence Committee, told me he would be interested in taking the number one job now that Congressman Devin Nunes, who is the ranking Republican intelligence, uh, is going to become CEO of this Trump media and technology group, whatever this is. Um, But what's so amazing about this is Nunes was in line to be the next chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. Explain to our viewers for just a second 
how big a gig that is uh, that Devin Nunes is walking away from. I mean, it's really stunning because the Ways and Means Committee is one of, if not the most prestigious committees in the House. It has, you know, purse string power. It just has power in general. You know, it has control over tax policy. I mean, you see how influential the Ways and Means Committee has been over the course of Biden's agenda just this year. You know, uh, the current chairman, Neil, is one of the top negotiators in the House in terms of what has gone into Build Back Better. He can can kill something just with a wave of the hand. He can. And so that is the kind of power that Nunes would have had. Uh, It's something, even when you're a rank and file member, you really fight to get on Ways and Means. Uh, It's a very exclusive committee. And so it's, it's just shocking that someone who was in line, knowing that Republicans are favored to win the House, would decide that they have other priorities. What, what do you make of it? Well, and famously, Paul Ryan wanted to be Ways and Means chair more than he wanted to be speaker. That yeah. was seen as a more appealing role. People wait for 10 years. He'd probably to be still chairman. be in Congress if Correct. he had done that. <laughs> People wait 10, 20 years for that kind of a role. I think it's kind of indicative of the decline of Congress. I mean, they've ceded a lot of uh, the power of the purse to the executive branch. They've ceded war powers to the executive branch. Um, and I think more broadly, the, the House in particular kind of looks like, you know, a crazy town these days with some of the members, the discussions that are being had. So on the one hand, I could see why it's not as appealing. For Devin Nunes, um, I think he will look back and regret this decision and realize he could have had a much bigger stake in U.S. history had he stayed on Ways and Means and not gone to this upstart venture. But we shall see. And there's also talk that one of the reasons might be uh, that they're redistricting in California and they might have made his district, which is a pretty strong Republican district, into a more competitive one. But they haven't made any final plans out there. So I, uh, how much do you think that was a factor? Well, I'm not one of the people who's lamenting or sorrowful that Devin Nunes is leaving Congress. I think it's probably good for the Republic. I didn't hear any lamentations. <laughs> no. table, for the record. <laughs> That's true, for the record. Uh, but it just shows you the bizarre world that we live in. Sure, I'm sure redistricting and personal uh, future has something to do with it. But it's the bizarre world that we live in where going off and uh, running as kind of a startup media company is more important than being the most powerful tax writer and trade negotiator in Congress. Um, And and so I think what we're seeing is on behalf of the Republicans, they just uh, the Republicans in Congress, the elected leadership, seem to be afraid of the, uh, the population they're supposed to be governing. They're afraid of Donald Trump. There is this sort of whiff of fear about all of them uh, and how they engage the national politics. And they're they'd rather be outside throwing bricks than inside building a house that everybody can live in. It's certainly easier, right, (laughs) than actually legislating. Jackie, we've been getting more and more details about Trump's coronavirus uh, diagnosis from former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. First, we learned that Trump tested positive before the debate against Biden. We learned that last week. Now we know that Trump's blood oxygen level dipped to dangerously low levels, and the White House tried to hide all of this. Are, Are you surprised? I think there was a lot of reporting at the time and the White House was trying to uh, say that it wasn't true, that a lot of this was happening. But, um, you know, the fact of the matter is that the American people deserved to know what was happening with the president's health um, for so many reasons. And his obsession with uh, not looking weak um, apparently trumped everything. I mean, Alyssa could speak more to it than I could because she was there and can (laughs) probably explain what the thinking was. But it certainly seems like that... um, his his personal, I mean, you saw the doctor even lying for him. Yeah. His, his, his personal feelings um, really outplayed what the country, the best interest of the country. And you were here, you were here last week, you were expressing outrage uh, that this was hidden from the American people, hidden from you, even though you were the communications director. Um, 
Meadows uh, said he had arranged for four doses of the monoclonal antibody drug to be sent to the White House in secret. He got approval from the FDA for the president to receive the treatment. Uh, we have reporting that Trump is not happy with Meadows about revealing all this. W- why do you think Meadows is doing this? Well, what I'm most stunned by is, I mean, the commander in chief, anyone in the chain of command or the line of succession, their health is not just about their health. It's the public's information as implications for the whole nation. And for some reason, some around President Trump did not understand that back when this was taking place. Um, I do recall that day extremely well when we were told he is in bad shape. The president is not doing well. I stood out to walk. to. This like, is after see, it's been de- At this revealed? point, it's public. It had been okay. public the, day, the, the night before. And seeing him walk, it was, I, I feared for his, his well-being and if he'd even make it. I mean, he's an older man. So to hear all of this in retrospect is... Why did we not tell the public that then? It just it, there, there's no justification for it. There's no good rationale, and I'm not surprised that former President Trump is disappointed to hear it. He doesn't like to look weak, um, but that was the reality. He was very sick, as are millions of Americans who get COVID, and he needs to be willing to. Say and that. and that was the thing is, and, and there was some speculation, and then he had COVID that perhaps it would change his mind, and the messaging he was putting out into the world might change, and it didn't. So the fact that this could have been a teachable moment yeah. was completely squandered, as so many Americans. We're sick and dying from the coronavirus. It's just indicative of, of how they see the world and how they do their politics. I mean, they have this vision of America that's so brittle that we can't take the truth about the president being sick with something everybody has. Americans can take it. We're a strong enough country that we can figure it out. I think this is, though, indicative of how they govern all over the place. And I think the difference between Republicans and Democrats at this moment is, like, are we going to hide from the things that are going to make the country stronger and face our flaws and deal with them? Or are we going to have the courage to sort of stand up and fight? For the things that, and, and, and it's pretty, it's pretty notable, uh, Laura. That we should note that when when Biden went to get a, I think it was a colonoscopy a few weeks ago, and he was under that they did the whole thing where you know Vice President Kamala Harris took control and she was in charge. And uh, not only did Trump have a colonoscopy, we've learned subsequently, and did not do that with Mike Pence. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was really in Ill. bad mm-hmm. shape. Mm-hmm. I mean, luckily he survived, but he was in bad shape. And they didn't, again, didn't do that with the vice president, which would have been appropriate. Right. And they did not make clear to the American public uh, and to the press how in bad of shape he was, which just shows all these uh, institutional norms, these these uh, steps of being transparent about the office and the most powerful person in the country that the Trump presidency, the Trump administration decided not to do that the whole way through. And just real quick, I remember saying to the president and his team at the time, Benjamin Netanyahu's wearing a mask. Vladimir Putin's wearing a mask. It's not weak. It's, it's showing leadership and doing the right thing is not weak. Unfortunately, that position didn't prevail, but people were telling him that. Mm-hmm. Thanks, one and all, for being here. Coming up next, new data just released on how effective the COVID vaccine is against the new Omicron variant. Stay with us. New in our health lead, the first glimpse of an answer to a question on many people's minds. Will the existing vaccines protect us against the new Omicron variant? Researchers in South Africa just released new insight. Let's bring in CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen. Elizabeth, this new study is focused on the Pfizer vaccine. What does it have to say? That's right. I actually just got off the phone with Alex Segal, who is the lead researcher in South Africa on this study. And he said, look, what our study showed is that it is that, first of all, a small study and it was in a lab. But it suggests that this is an escape variant. This is a variant that knows how to to some extent out with the vaccine. But he said he feels pretty confident that if you're fully vaccinated, you will th- that this vaccine will that the vaccines 
will help protect against severe disease. And that's what we really look for vaccines to do. He said significant protection. That's what he expects from the vaccine against this variant. Now, will it protect you from getting infected and a little bit sick? He, he, he's not as confident on that. He doesn't think that's necessarily going to happen. But he does think that even with this variant, that people who are fully vaccinated will get significant protection. Now, it's interesting, Jake, because they don't have Pfizer as a booster in South Africa, so he couldn't test it that way. But he did say that he thinks a booster would be even better, would give even more protection. What about people who have already had coronavirus? Right. So he said that if pe- what he found was that people who had coronavirus and got vaccinated, that that was better, that that was really a good situation to be in. So, again, this vac- this this variant, it knows how to be an escape artist to some extent. It is giving a challenge to the vaccine much more so than the Delta variant did. But he still is confident that vaccination will provide significant protection to people against severe disease. Still has more studies to do, but that's what he's thinking based on this one small study in the lab. A new Axios-Ipsos poll found that only one in four Americans are planning on canceling holiday travel plans because of the Omicron variant. Only one in three are planning on skipping indoor dining due to the new threat. Now, I heard this, and to play devil's advocate here, We don't know that Omicron is more dangerous. Is it really wrong that so few folks are planning on changing their plans or their behavior? You know, Jake, that's a great question. And I think the answer is it's not really so much about whether or not you travel. It's about the precautions that you take. So let's go through what those precautions are. First of all, the CDC is clear. If you are not vaccinated, you should not be traveling. It is not safe for you. It is not safe for other people. And when you do travel, you need to wear a mask, whether it's at the airport or on a train or in an airplane, and also protect immune compromised family members. I think we we forget about this group way too much. Folks with cancer, other people, protect them. Make sure that you're wearing a mask around them. Take other precautions with them. They're very vulnerable. All right, Elizabeth Cohen, thanks so much. Jussie Smollett, the actor accused of staging a hate crime against himself, was on the stand again today where things got a little tense. Stay with us. Internationally, the defense has now wrapped its case and testimony has concluded in the trial of actor Jussie Smollett. The former Empire actor faced tough questions from prosecutors today as he attempted to dispute the accusations that he staged a fake hate crime against himself and then lied to Chicago police about it. CNN's Sarah Seidner joins us now live from outside the courtroom. And Sarah, things got pretty tense between Smollett and the prosecutor during cross-examination today. What happened? You got that right, Jake. You know, yesterday, Smollett was on the stand. This is his second day on the stand. Yesterday, he kind of spilled a lot of his personal and intimate details. Today, it was fireworks, as you might imagine, in the courtroom because the prosecutor was cross-examining him. Now, as you know, Smollett is facing six counts for disorderly conduct for allegedly planning and participating in his own fake hate crime uh, and then saying it was perpetrated by Trump supporters and then lying to police. Those are the allegations against him, which he has repeatedly refuted saying that he is innocent of the charges. Now, Samalette said it was his former trainer and his trainer's brother, the Osandarios, who were the liars, and he said that again 
in court today. Now, he, the, the, the prosecutor was trying to, as prosecutors do, find inconsistencies in his story and, and make those very clear to the jury. And here's how he did it in one instance. He talked about uh, what the Osendarios testified under oath, that the Osendario brothers said that, yes, indeed, it was Jesse Smollett who planned this and that they were simply carrying out an attack that they were paid for. The prosecutors focused in on this particular inconsistency. It has to do with that noose. We all saw that video uh, when police came in of the noose around Jesse Smollett's neck the night uh, that he said he was attacked. The prosecutor said, why did you or did you take this noose off and then put it back on so that you could dishevel the noose to make it look like there was a potential lynching that night? And Smollett answered him, yes, I did take the noose off and I put it aside and then put it back on when police arrived because I was told by one of my colleagues that I needed to preserve the evidence. So prosecutors then said to him, well, then how do you explain this particular thing that you told ABC's uh, Good Morning America. So when the police came, um, I kept the clothes on. I kept the rope. So on. you had the rope on the entire time? I mean, it wasn't like wrapped around, but yeah, it was around because I wanted them to see. I wanted them to see what this was. He simply acknowledged that he did say that in the interview, but it was inconsistent with what he said on the stand and the prosecutors said that was an inconsistency he could not explain. Jake. All right, Sarah Seidner, thanks so much. The progressive push to change the Supreme Court is getting more attention today. The bipartisan commission established by President Biden to look at reforming the Supreme Court unanimously voted to adopt its final recommendations this afternoon, but progressive Democrats might be a bit disappointed. A draft of the report shows intense disagreement over the idea of adding more seats to the high court. CNN Supreme Court analyst Joan Biscupa joins us now. And Joan, the draft of this report is nearly 300 pages long. What are the main things we should be paying attention to here? Okay, on the court expansion question, which is exactly why this commission was even set up, because this was President Biden's compromise. He'd have a commission rather than say he supported court expansion or what some people call court packing. Profound disagreement on that one. Essentially a non-starter there. Term limits, though, there was some bipartisan support for term limits. For example, like 18-year terms. But that's a really practical problem for them. How would they roll them out? And also, there's a constitutional problem. Yeah, you have to amend the Constitution. Yes, the Constitution says that uh, a justice is appointed for life, can serve for good behavior, and the only time a justice could be removed is through impeachment. So, you know, exactly how would people cycle, how would justices cycle in and out? So those were the two big ones. But then the, the panel also looked at things like court transparency, uh, recusals, when the justices might have a conflict of interest and not tell anyone anything. So, you know, even though they couldn't even agree on whether there's a legitimacy problem with the Supreme Court right now, they put a lot of issues on the table on those 300 pages. Do we know why the commission doesn't seem to be making any concrete recommendations? Well, it says that wasn't part of its charge. And as you probably remember, Jake, when President Biden set it up, he initially said he was going to ask for recommendations. But then in April, when the commission was established, then 36 members, they finished with 30, 34 members, their charge was not to make recommendations. And I think that's because they weren't going to be able to make recommendations, frankly. And the report was put together by a commission of legal experts appointed by right. President Biden. Right. What's the real world impact of their conclusions, do you think? Well, to do anything really big and substantive, you'd need Congress and the president. There's no real buy-in 
from Joe Biden to change things or from a majority in Congress. But, Jake, you know who this could change slightly? Our nine people on the Supreme Court. They could look at this and look at some of the issues that have been raised about mysterious late night orders, lack of transparency on issues. And they could actually maybe start addressing those things internally. For example, one one issue that was raised was the fact that the justices do not abide by an ethics code, at least formally, that lower court judges have. And they might internally start to think about actually having an ethics code that at least is formalized for them. Joan Biskupic, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Coming up, dozens killed, houses buried under ash, thousands of innocent people displaced after a massive volcano eruption. That's next. And our world lead rescue workers in Indonesia continue to dig, dig through thick layers of hot ash after a volcanic eruption on Saturday left dozens of people dead and thousands homeless. Let's get straight straight to CNN's Paula Hancox. Paula, are rescuers still finding survivors at this point? Well, Jake, they were for the first couple of days. We're really not hearing about that so much anymore. And everything is working against the search and rescue teams at this point. There is very bad weather, uh, strong winds and heavy rain. And of course, the, the volcano did erupt once again on Tuesday, which had to suspend those efforts. And that mixed with heavy rain has officials worried that they could see new rivers of uh, hot lava. Now, at this point, we know that at least 34 people have been confirmed dead. There are dozens, though, still missing. And search and rescue teams are not giving up. They are still trying to dig through uh, the, uh, the thick layers of ash and debris. That ash, though, is now starting to harden. So uh, it is making it more difficult. So we we know also uh, that a key bridge was uh, taken out, which has hampered uh, the efforts. But uh, when you look at some of these images, Jake, I mean, you can see the hardened ash reaches to the rooftops in some of these neighbouring villages. We've heard from survivors who were trapped in their homes but were then able to come out. Unfortunately, we've also heard from officials of uh, those in vehicles that were unable to get out. There was just no chance of escape as this happened uh, all so quickly. Other survivors as well talk of, of having to run through hot ash and lava to, to get to safety. Now, many of the injuries we are hearing about uh, in keeping what, with what you would expect from a volcano are of uh, burns. But at this point, the, the search and rescue teams are simply not giving up, even though they do have to uh, continue to suspend their efforts. Now, the issue with this was the fact that it was so unexpected. It is one of the the more active volcanoes in Indonesia, uh, but it simply wasn't predicted, which did not give many a chance to to evacuate. Now, at this point, we know thousands have been displaced. We know thousands of of homes have been destroyed. Uh, Dozens of schools have been destroyed. Uh, Indonesia's President Joko Widodo touring the area to see uh, what the government could do to try and help. But at this point, it is still very much a search and rescue operation. But officials do point out that there are many dangers for those teams trying to find survivors. And quite often, they do have to suspend their efforts. Jake. All right, Paula Hancox, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, how some World War II veterans are marking today's 80th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Stay with us. Eightieth anniversary of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. According to the Department of Veterans Affairs, fewer than a quarter of a million U.S. World War II veterans 
are still alive out of the 16 million Americans who served in World War II. As CNN's Pete Montine reports for us now, every passing anniversary of the date, which will live in infamy, grows more and more important. It is a hero's send-off, eight decades in the making. Jack Holder was enlisted in the Navy as a machinist. Frank Edmond was a Navy musician. David Russell was on the USS Oklahoma. And 101-year-old Cass Phillips was a radio man on a flying boat. That the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor. When Japanese fighters and bombers started their attack on Pearl Harbor. They are among 63 World War II veterans boarding this American Airlines flight to Hawaii. Pearl Harbor means a lot. This is an all-volunteer mission that organizers say is critical. When they started planning, four more Pearl Harbor veterans were supposed to be on board. We're going to get you out here. 97-year-old Walter Lobetsky flew large transport planes in the Pacific Theater. This is it. Now his daughter is flying him to Hawaii. I can't even, I don't have words for it because it's, um, it's just such an honor and never in my wildest dreams would I think that I would be doing this. In Hawaii, they paid homage to the sunken USS Arizona, where more than a thousand sailors remain entombed. 101-year-old Ira Schaub watched the attack in horror from the nearby USS Dobbin. It's hard to say what the feelings that run through your mind are. Uh, uh, you're scared. You don't know what's going to happen next. A GoFundMe for his visit to Pearl Harbor exceeded its goal by more than $6,000. One more member of the greatest generation grateful to see this 80th anniversary. Thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart. It was uh, very generous and unexpected and very kind. And I am forever grateful. The president and the first lady commemorated the day by visiting the World War II memorial here. They laid flowers in honor of her father, who is a Navy signalman in World War II. By the way, Jake, that trip from Hawaii returns on Thursday, and time is of the essence to honor these veterans. The youngest in that group is 93 years old. Twelve of them are over 100. Jake. Pete Montine, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Before we go... It is that time of the year when the stars come out to honor some of humanity's best. Now, more than ever, the world needs heroes. This weekend, please join Anderson Cooper and Kelly Ripa live as they name the 2021 Hero of the Year. It's the 15th annual CNN Heroes All-Star Tribute. That's Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Room. Thanks for watching. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 